listeners. So one quick announcement before we get into today's episode. If you're in the American Dance Therapy Association or not, but you're going to the conference this October, um, later this month, then you may be interested in a special episode that you can access through the website. Um, it's an episode that that's really just an open conversation about how to prepare for the conference, how to stay grounded through all the events that go on throughout the weekend, how to network, how to just kind of make the best out of it. Because uh, my first conference that I went to, I was so nervous that I couldn't even really get up and dance for the banquet. So I definitely felt really tense. I had to go home early. And I definitely just wasn't prepared for how overwhelming the conference was going to be. So it took me, you know, a couple of years to really understand what to do. And I talk with my colleagues about that in this special episode. Uh, The way that you receive it is you go to the website, www.mindyourbodydmt, and you will see a pop-up on the top of the screen that just prompts you to enter your email, and I will send it over. I'm not going to publish it on the podcast because I know not everybody who listens is going to the conference or even a dance therapist. So if you're interested in getting the free episode, just go to the website and sign up. So today I'm talking to Christine Caldwell, who is the founder and former director of the Somatic Counseling Program in Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado. Christine is coming out with a book called Bodyfulness in 2018, where she really pushes back on the widely known concept of mindfulness. Christine talks about how being bodyful or being more aware and deeply understanding and following our intuitions of our own bodies can really help people become empowered and authentically guided by who they are, not just in their minds, but also in their bodies. We had a really great conversation about why this is so important, why each person can benefit from being bodyful, and even why groups of people collectively can benefit from being bodyful together. I really enjoy this conversation, and I hope you enjoy listening to it. This is Mind Your Body, a dance movement therapy perspective on the integration of our emotional, cognitive, physical, and spiritual aspects of our being into one more aware and whole existence. My name is Dr. Christine Caldwell. I'm a dance therapist and a body psychotherapist, and I'm a professor emeritus at Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado in the USA, and have been there for 35 years. So uh, I would say my identity is uh, as a dance therapist, a clinician, but also as a writer and as an academic. So uh, I kind of hold all those different uh, hats, I guess mm-hmm. you could say. <laughs> so the, a lot of my work, even though I feel like I don't completely identify as a dance therapist, or I don't solely identify as a dance therapist, uh, a lot of my work really centers on movement and what kind of movement is happening in that, uh, what happens when movement is disturbed and what happens to help people restore movement as, in a sense, the 
mm, the backbone of, of any kind of healing mechanism. And so I'm looking at physical body movement, but I'm also looking at uh, the movement of emotions, the movement of thought, uh, and seeing all those as interrelated. Mm-hmm. So you had told me that you want to talk about bodyfulness, which is a term that you coined, right? Uh, I'm not sure I coined it, actually. I think uh, what might be fair to say is that I'm popularizing it. Uh-huh. There was There's an academic uh, named Sujimara in Tokyo who gave a presentation on it in 2006, I think. So I don't want to say that I coined the term uh, because even though I've been using it for a bunch of years, but it really uh, almost doesn't matter. I think that uh, it's just a good term and we should start using it. So, Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you were just talking about before about studying movement as the physical body actions and also Mm -hmm. as emotions – and mm-hmm. the the less physical, the more emotional, sensational aspects. Mm-hmm. Is that part of bodyfulness? And can you explain what bodyfulness means? Yeah, yeah. Well, what I would say is that the closest term that we have to bodyfulness up till now is the word embodiment. And I think of embodiment as the ability to be aware of and tracking your physical state and to track uh, sensations and motions in your body and uh, be able to, um, in in a sense, use them for your own regulation or management so that you really feel that uh, you're not just a talking head, that you're actually using uh, physical processes as a way to go through your day. And so that's what I might call embodiment. Uh, but I felt like there needed to be another word beyond embodiment, that there needed to be a word that looked at how to hold those things, those embodiment um, uh, activities in a kind of contemplative or self-reflective environment. Uh, the word, using the word, got started for me when uh, the university that I teach at, Nairobi University, is uh was founded by a Buddhist monk who had fled to the West from Tibet. And so the word mindfulness is used a lot around my university. Hmm. And certainly they look at the relationship of like contemplative practice to education and learning and all that good stuff. So I was hearing the word mindfulness a lot and I was realizing that I was getting very irritated at that and uh, because it felt like once again the mind was being privileged and the mind was being seen as in a sense our definition of who we were so we are our mind and uh, we are what we think we are our attitudes and beliefs and that's who we are and uh, there was also that kind of 
privileging of the brain as well and that the mind is in the brain and uh, etc so uh even though what i was noticing because i'm also a researcher i've uh, been doing research for almost the entire my entire professional life is that if you look at the research about mindfulness a lot of times the research that they will do uh, that talks about mindfulness involves the body and so they'll talk about the benefits and of course there's wonderful amazing benefits to mindfulness practices Uh, the research is very good on this but they were including aspects of the body in it they were having people do qigong uh, this uh, very ancient uh, contemplative sensory tracking uh, form They were having people do yoga, breathing, uh, sensory tracking and all these things. And I'm going, hey, wait a minute. You know, (laughs) this is uh, this is not happening in the mind. And the benefits that they're getting are actually a lot more um, around what is being done uh, somatically in the body. And so, uh, you know as many things projects do for me, at least many projects start through irritation. And so it was (laughs) through my irritation at the word uh, mindfulness and how it was being used. And it was also being defined in a muddy way. When you looked at the research, one research project would uh, use a different definition of mindfulness than another. They would include different elements. They would include different body practices so the research was um, very, uh, very muddied. Uh, and so I wanted to um, make sure that I could talk about this uh, in a way that didn't create a kind of um, dismissal of the body or to particularly to see the body as like an object, you know, it's or it's like a tool, something that you use in your meditation. And so I uh, decided to uh, get fussy and uh, coin this term or use this term bodyfulness. So that's uh, how it all got started. And then uh, Shambhala Publications. Uh, decided to take me up on a book proposal for it. So there you go. Wow. So um, is bodyfulness a concept? Is it a certain structured, more concrete practice? Kind of like you were mentioning, mindfulness has these ideas of using your breath. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, like I know that mindfulness is kind of an open concept that's thrown around a lot, but that also has you know, specific guidance and directives to become more mindful? Yeah, yeah, it's a really good question. Um, And I'd like to give you a long answer on that, if you don't mind. Uh, Part of what I was feeling should be included in the concept of bodyfulness is the feeling that you know best about your body, that when you look at what bodyfulness could or should mean that it involves the ability for a person to sensitively work with their physical state their their physical presence 
And so what happened for me was that I felt that I couldn't just hammer out a bunch of exercises or practices that I'm handing over like some kind of a guru. I didn't want to put it in that kind of tradition. I didn't want to locate it as if it was some kind of um, transmission, you know, uh, that put it in a kind of high, that would put it in a kind of hierarchical uh, relationship uh, within oneself that I don't think would work. And so I think it's fine. What I say in the book is that it's, it's great to have different teachers and it's great to do practices, let's say like yoga, uh, that, uh, really are quite wonderful in helping with developing bodyfulness. But the practices, uh, it's, also very good to modify practices that you've been uh, uh, exposed to and really listen to your own body in a way that says, you know, that yoga pose, it works a little better for me this way, you know, and I don't like holding the pose. I like wiggling in the pose or something like this so that your body knows best, you know, best. So, uh, I encourage the reader to use standard practices, to modify standard practices, but also to make up their own practices, to really trust that your body knows how to wake up. It knows how to uh, self-reflect. It knows how to really find its way to an awakened uh, state. And so it the practice of bodyfulness is actually a practice of waking up to one's own authority at what I call bodily authority. And uh, the authority of the body is actually one of the central principles of bodyfulness. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, I got the term. I actually stole the term from <laughs> an anthropologist named Brigitte Jordan. And she coined this term called the authority, the authority of the body. Uh, she was actually uh, researching, well, the delivery of children, labor and delivery. And she was looking at it, sort of com uh, comparing modern Western hospital deliveries versus traditional society deliveries at homes with midwives. And so what she noticed was that in the U.S. and other developed countries, that a laboring woman would go into the doctor, into the hospital, and would immediately give over the author her authority to the doctor and to the machines. And so the machines would tell her what's happening, and the doctor would tell her what to do. And it wasn't about... Uh, Brigitte Jordan was really sort of appalled at how much uh, it wasn't about the woman actually knowing what was going on with her own body and her own labor and her own child. Whereas when she looked at these more traditional cultures that used midwives, uh, she saw that in, in this kind of situation, the woman goes into labor and she's considered an expert on her own labor and delivery, whereas the midwife comes in 
is an expert on labor and delivery in general. That midwife has been with 500 maybe births or something. And so there's this shared authority between the midwife who knows a lot about birth in general and the laboring woman who knows a lot about her specific body. And so that's called the authority of the body. And when I read her work, I was just fascinated with the idea that we could recover that quality in a lot of other realms. So we could we could recover that quality medically, for instance. So when we go to the doctor, we can see the doctor as an authority on health in general and bodies in general but that we are an authority on our specific body and that we need to take ownership of that bodily authority. And of course that I think that's true in dance therapy as well. So the type of dance therapy that I do or, or how I see psychotherapy occurring is a shared bodily authority between the therapist and the, and the client or the, the therapist and the mover. And so the, the work that is occurring is the work, therapeutic work that really uh, celebrates or restores the bodily authority of the client. And so that they are leaving the session more able to read their body, more able to trust the signals of their body, more able to... Uh, trust and follow different movement impulses that are occurring that are impulses that the body, uh, your body authority actually has toward healing. So I wanted to, it's a long way of talking about something, but it's quite important to me in the sense of that bodyfulness should be about our authority, uh, as a, as a, physical being. And I also extended that to talk about uh, social justice issues, that one of the ways I feel that we can also promote social justice is to promote this sense of uh, personal bodily authority. You know, when you think about how people become oppressed, people become oppressed uh, in ways in which their bodily authority is taken away. And so they're, uh, they're told that, uh, what they feel or experience isn't relevant, isn't true, uh, that the, the people in power are, uh, the authority on what is real and what is true and that what their bodily experience is doesn't matter, literally doesn't matter. And so we, in a sense, dematerialize the body. And that's also stolen from a, feminist sociologist named Judith Butler. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah, I think that first example is really relatable of the woman giving birth and Mm -hmm. all that you provided there. I'm also curious about the example you provided like in a dance movement therapy session. And I'm just thinking about people who've you know, survivors of trauma and Mm -hmm. just people in general who are stuck in certain patterns in their bodies mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and therefore their behaviors and thoughts and emotions. And I think it's so important to give people the authority over their body, but how do you, how do you or anyone 
um, working on themselves or working as a therapist or a healer with others, balance what they know in their professional expertise versus what the, what the client knows, um, or is stuck on, you know, like what if they're resistant to a suggestion to try something new? Well, uh, again, I think that oftentimes resistance to suggestions to try something new could be a reenactment of the abuse of power. And certainly the client could experience it that way, even if they don't consciously know, or, you know, that's a fancy term of way of talking about it. But so I, I question a lot of any therapists thinking that they have a good suggestion. So I think there's a little bit of self-reflection that all therapists need to do, not just dance therapists. All therapists need to do about this issue of the power differential and the authority of the client and particularly ways in which we can uh, disempower clients uh, with that uh, assumption. However, certainly there are people that are what we call low functioning and that have disorders of movement, the movement of their thoughts, the movement of their emotions, etc., so the, the important authority of the therapist is not so much to decide what the client should do. Uh, for instance, that the client needs to extend their arm longer out, you know, that uh, this gesture, this short gesture toward the body uh, isn't full enough and that it should be larger. Right. This is a very common misperception in dance therapy. So it the idea there is uh, in my work, yeah, I, I have a concept in my work that is also in this uh, term bodyfulness that talks about the ability to postpone meaning. And so if I were to... Uh, talk about this in terms of uh, philosophy, this is a phenomenological method. In other words, you're studying your somatic experience, you're studying your bodily experience, and you postpone meaning making. You don't make meaning out of it until you've completed the movement sequence of experiencing it directly. And so the authority of the therapist is not to uh, suggest meaning and, or suggest something to do that would be better, but to help the client hold their direct experience longer so that they learn to tolerate, trust, and read their own experience over time and so it's sorry could you give an example of that yeah yeah well let's go back to your uh, mentioning of trauma survivors so a trauma survivor a, a very typical traumatic symptom is uh, sensitivity to um, similar stimuli as occurred in a trauma. So let's say someone 
uh, is a war veteran. They were around a lot of violence, and that violence oftentimes had uh, explosions in it. And they have trauma uh, such that they have a trauma symptom where the, they startle, they dysregulate uh, whenever a loud noise occurs because they're not able to, to create a distinction. The trauma doesn't allow them to create a distinction between a car backfiring and an uh, explosion in Fallujah. So that's very common PTSD symptom. And so what happens there is that a way to understand an example of this is that you're not coming in as the expert therapist to say how how they're going to get rid of this trauma, how they're going to resolve this trauma. You could, of course, say that other people have done certain things, like there's certainly some work that the VA is doing around desensitization therapies, very straightforward behavioral therapies. But what might be a way to look at it is that the therapist can really help the client, this soldier, ex-soldier, see that the reaction is a, a effort to really uh, move with something that happened that was traumatic and that the original way that the body wanted to move with that didn't occur and that we want to be able to find that together. And so you're going to ask the ex-soldier to tune into their body, tune into their sensations, imagine a loud sound, and then track what their body does. And so you get a reading of what's actually happening rather than jumping to some kind of prepackaged resolution. So the trauma is so distinct and so individual that this is, I think, a, uh, a really important way to go about it is that you start by really helping that, that soldier track their body and discover for themselves what's the sequence. Now, you might be directive in saying we need to slow this down a little bit so that you don't dysregulate. And certainly I'm there part of my authority as a therapist is to help them stay with the, the details of their experience in a way that they don't dysregulate. But I'm not suggesting what their experience should be. That's the, mm -hmm. that's the difference. I'm not suggesting where that experience should go, what it should look like, what would be better, uh, anything like that. All in there is to help hold the regulatory container in a, a very strong relational field. If I were to use some more technical therapy terms. Yeah, that makes sense. So in relation to bodyfulness, I mean, it, it sounds like it can be compared with mindfulness of just being aware at the moment of what sensations are coming up, 
where mm-hmm. where it's going, maybe how it moves mm-hmm. that particular person. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So because sensation and movement are actually wired up together uh, physiologically, such that all sensory neurons sooner or later hook up to a motor neuron, if we want to get really technical, all of what you experience wants to become an action. And this is why I think dance therapy is so important for the world, by the way, mm-hmm. it, because we really have to understand how the whole loop, that whole sensory motor loop. And so if you help a person to really track the literally the phenomenon of what are what's happening, what also they can begin to track is uh, small movement impulses. And so the, the, the body's actually trying to organize a response to the experience that they're having. And if you can begin to watch how the body's trying to organize a movement, then the movement comes from the authority of the client's body rather than, oh, I think it should be larger. I think it should be stronger. I think it should be whatever. So it the authority of the client's movement impulses, which come from their waking up to their sensory tracking and waking up to the tiny little micro movements that are trying to organize a response to the situation. That's the really fertile ground that I'm interested in and that what bodyfulness is about. So you're saying that every sensation that a person feels translates into some sort of motor movement impulse. That would be probably a slightly overly simplified way of putting it. And it's a way I usually put it for folks that haven't studied anatomy, but a little bit more detail there is that the brain actually has a bunch of different centers for movement. So there are whole, there there are little portions of the brain that are only devoted to initiating a movement. Another one uh, that's devoted to planning a movement, organizing it, getting ready for it. And another one that inhibits movement. And so there's these three basic things that happen around movement is planning, initiation, and inhibiting. And all movement is a combination of those three. And so, for instance, when you have uh, certain neurological disorders uh, attack the movement inhibition part of the brain so that you have tremors and uncontrolled movements and things like Parkinson's, things like that. So that Uh, we actually need to inhibit a lot of movement. And certainly our understanding of impulse control, for instance, is about that motor inhibition. I am frustrated at my boss. I want to hit him, but I don't. And I inhibit the movement. So the movement actually, the movement impulse rises up. And it even can get planned so that you can see the person clenching their hands, you know, or something like that. Right. But you can inhibit it. (laughs) So that's. Thank God. (laughs) And that inhibition takes 
uh, is its own movement sequence. It's its own motor sequence that's just as important as hitting is the ability to inhibit hitting. And so that's, again, getting a little bit more detailed, but it's it's just such cool stuff. It's it's amazing stuff. And it's a level of sophistication that I think we need as dance therapists so that we can understand how the the authority of the body is working to help the person to find a uh, a body full resolution to whatever their experience is. So is bodyfulness a concept that is practiced only within a therapeutic relationship or can people practice bodyfulness on their own? Or um, I guess there's probably a range of that, like what kind of people can practice bodyfulness on their own? What kind of people do you suggest uh, have yeah. guidance? Yeah. Yeah, this is a great question, and I, you know, I really thought a lot about this, and I'm not sure that my thinking is has arrived at some kind of summit about it uh, by any means. But again, going back to this idea of the authority of the body, I really wanted to have uh, this idea that one could practice on one's own and one's own authority using techniques that you experience as helpful and also making up your own experiences that you feel are helpful. So in the book, I have a lot of different exercises and some of which I say, you might want to do this with a therapist. You might want to have the extra support if you feel like you can't work with this on your own. Uh, so I do invoke that quite a bit, but I also really trust that people can go quite far if they really have an ability to work from their bodily authority. Part of what happens there, though, is that, again, with this idea of postponing meaning, it's so important not to... Uh, Mm. Well, you know, that in I live in Boulder, and, and uh, Boulder has a sort of its own culture. And we have this bumper sticker that you see a lot in town. And the bumper sticker says, don't believe everything that you think. <laughs> and, you know, this is a really great bumper sticker, particularly in this particular uh, sociopolitical climate right now. And uh, it, it's really true. You know, our thinking can is very error prone. Uh, our thoughts are notoriously error prone. And so literally we make shit up all the time. And this is why interpretation explanations should not be driving the experience. It should be after the experience, not driving it. Mm. So the, however, that same idea is true of the body. The body can make errors as well. And so, you know, things can be wrong that we're not tracking. Uh, the body can send confusing signals. Uh, we don't know how to interpret body signals. So there's a lot of ways that we bodily authority is not saying my body's so wonderful and so special and so right that anything that I feel 
I should act on or anything that I feel, you know, is, is uh, uh, something that I uh, have a right to. Uh, that's actually hubris and it's all, it's an error. Uh, and so, and it has to do with the fact that we actually are not just individuals. We're also collectives. We also, we interrelate and we, uh, uh, the Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh has this wonderful word called interbeing. Mm. We inter are with everybody and everything. And so we're not just individuals. We're also members of families and communities and relationships. And these relationships exert back pressure on our kind of, uh, and a kind of self-centered exploration of the body. Uh, because we can get too self-centered about our bodies. And so how do we really share the, the lived experience of the body across the skin boundaries and uh, across that both for other humans, but also non-human animals. Uh, so I think that uh, it, this is a deliciously complex topic. <laughs> Might yeah. be a way to sort of put a period on the end of that very long <laughs> sentence. <laughs> no, it's, a, it's reminding me of times in my own very deeply contemplative states of like wanting to listen to my own body and its needs and how mm -hmm. I felt that that was so important, but also yeah. realize at the same time that, you know, and, and it kind of like in a righteous way of like, this is what I need and I need to do this and take care of myself. But at the same yeah. time, there was this conflict of uh, realizing that this other person or these other people uh, need something else from mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it's so, I mean, there's no answer to that really. It's uh, yeah. maybe it's some sort of balance between your own bodyfulness and someone else's, whether it's in a relationship or yeah. in a family. Yeah. So yeah. I definitely can relate to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very well put. It's, it's, um, I think it helps save things like psychotherapy of, of any kind from becoming too precious and uh, becoming, uh, uh, you know, here in Boulder, we would call it navel gazing. You know, uh, it, it just uh, uh, understanding how we are, uh, yes, an individual organism, but we're also a more communal organism as well. Uh, if we just look inside our own body, there are parts of our body that are doing different things all the time. And uh, we have to also deal with, for instance, um, sensations that we decide to push back against. So, I might say, you know, I've, uh, I'm hungry right now, but uh, when I look at the situation, I have actually eaten a lot today, and I'm choosing right now to push back against that hunger feeling and say, no, I'm not going to just automatically go eat something. And so that's bodyfulness also. Hmm. So we don't want to... Uh, 
uh, sort of uh, worship sensation or worship movement, even though it's hard for me not to. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's also, I think, conflicting sensations even within our own body at the same time. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And there's also ways that uh, we need to push ourselves. And so a lot of what I was looking at in the book is the concept of challenge and challenging the body, because so much of the research literature now, particularly on aging, is talking about, and I'm getting older myself, so it gets more interesting to me, and uh, the research on aging is talking about the need to constantly challenge oneself. And so the challenge comes from novelty, creating novelty in your life. That is one of the biggest uh, vaccinations against uh, cognitive decline, for instance. But that that's also true for the physical body as well, that we have to uh, keep moving in ways that actually challenge us cardiovascularly, um, orthopedically, all of this. And so how do I understand that, just like you're saying, part of me wants to just sit on the couch, but part of me also knows that if I get up off the couch and go to that dance class, that I will feel better and that I will um, feel more healthy. So it's um, bodyfulness is, a, a again, I think... Uh, that kind of balance that you're talking about is is really uh, really important and needs to be sussed out in um, you know some really uh, bodyful ways. Is it kind of similar to a meditation concept where, uh, or some sorts of med- meditation where? You're aware of these conflicts, you're aware of these sensations, but I guess you kind of mentioned this already. You don't necessarily judge or interpret them. You just kind of observe them mm-hmm. and witness them. Yes. Yeah. And here, uh, I would say, is another cousin. So meditation, I think, has, uh, you know, it has to have something going for it. It's so old and so venerated and has such amazing effects. So there's a lot to be said about meditation. However, I think that as a dance therapist, this kind of practice uh, was a head scratcher for me at at times because, um, you know, at my university, you actually can, there's a lot of meditation training going on, sitting meditation training on going on all the time. And so over the years, I've had a lot of different sitting meditation practices where there's this idea about stillness and there's this idea about non-reactivity. And like just like you're saying, you observe your thoughts rather than sort of let them take you away. And of course, a lot of meditation is about you have a thought or you have a sensation and you you don't get involved with it and you just go for what's called the, you know, the gap between your thoughts or your sensations. This is just kind of pure awareness without any content. However, I'm a little concerned that that practice is not sufficient. That 
particularly one of the big complaints about meditation is that it all occurs when you're sitting on a cushion. And then you get off the cushion and you have a life. And the meditation is supposed to just kind of mm, apply itself or or uh, somehow make you so wonderful as you get up off the cushion that you're going to be magically different. And I think in some ways that's true, but not completely. There still is this very powerful issue of that we are moving bodies and we get up off that cushion and we relate to other people. We go through our day. We have all these different physiological things going on. We're in constant motion and basically we need to not only, you know, there was this, um, great book title that this woman Sylvia Borstein had. She she wrote a book that was called Don't Just Do Something, Sit There. And I, you know, very clever, obviously, <laughs> because, you know, people will definitely say, don't just sit there, do something. But it has to be both, because you shouldn't just sit there either. And you actually do need to do something. And so bodyfulness to me is about the idea that a contemplative practice can be embedded in the moment-to-moment experiences of your daily life. It doesn't have to be this kind of separate, standalone, precious thing that you do on retreats and or in special rooms or on special sitting surfaces or whatever that bodyfulness is something that can occur on a moment-to-moment basis. And certainly people say that mindfulness is the same way. Uh, But again, we need to really understand how the body is awake in the present moment and is really uh, using lived experience as a a way to... uh, achieve a kind of contemplative life, a a self-reflective life and a contemplative life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What you're saying about meditation, how it takes place in a seated, still position, usually. Mm -hmm, Um, There is walking meditation and things like that, but a little bit. It's very different, though, than, you know, putting emotions into action and then responding to that and then observing how you physically respond to different situations, Mm -hmm. which we do in life. So yeah, yeah, of course it makes sense to me to incorporate the body into Mm -hmm. all that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well put. Well, I think again, the, the issue of bodily authority, the issue of, one's connectedness to others, uh, the issue of uh, luxuriating in lived experience without explanation or rationalization, to really push back against the kind of uh, uh, hegemony of, of, of the mind that comes in and says, oh, this is what this is about, or this is from my past, or this is about this, or this needs to be different, or or any of that narration, that kind of cognitive narration, 
So what I get really interested in is the the actual physical experience before that cognitive narration can come in and box it up into a, a particular form that then gets um, uh, arranges the results that we get. And so the practice is really one of trying to just stay in lived experience. And again, somewhat related to authentic movement, to just really stay in lived experience, but also, unlike authentic movement, to stay in that experience when in contact with other people, uh, when in conflict with other people, when uh, during sex, during all kinds of human behaviors and human activities. And so that's that's the idea of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think people in general want answers and want to know, like, what, yeah. what will, what does this mean about yeah. me? Or uh, what does this say about me? Or why do I do this? Um, so true. Yeah. And, so true. And what you're saying. Well, it's is, easy, right? It's simple. It makes life simple and easy. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. And also, yeah. I mean, it feels good to understand yourself better. But with bodyfulness, it sounds like you can you can still gain this understanding of yourself. You can still observe patterns, probably, right? Mm-hmm. Is that part mm-hmm. of it? Observing, observing patterns of your body responding and sensating in different, all different types of situations. Yes, very true. The this ability to watch for patterns of behavior is very important, and uh, partly I'm interested in people really celebrating their patterns. You know, it's really celebrating which ones work for them, and not making patterns wrong, but being able to modify them and uh, go in different directions when you decide that that's what feels right. I think the other thing that that uh, is important in bodyfulness is uh, the concept of play, that humans are a playing species and we play our whole life long. And uh, I think there's, you know, really good reason why we are a playful species. Um, the ability to play is correlated with so many things uh, like intelligence and creativity and happiness and health and well-being and all this good stuff. So a lot of what I talk about is that bodyfulness isn't just a kind of serious uh, undertaking like you might see in a meditation uh, retreat. It's also not that kind of painful exploration of one's deep, dark psyche like (laughs) psychology can sometimes do, but that we can actually also wake up uh, through the vehicle of play and that play is a, a kind of natural birthright that we can leverage toward bodyfulness. And so hopefully... We can also play our way into uh, bodyful <laughs> states, as well as therapize our way and meditate our way into bodyful states. Yeah, that's actually uh, reminding me. I don't know if this is kind of what you're getting at, but I have this. Uh, I discovered an authentic movement <laughs> that um, we did play a lot. I was in a group of five other people, 
And at points, Mm -hmm. multiple occasions, I would begin laughing hysterically. Oh, yeah. And and that was great. But it often turned into crying. (laughs) And I still do this sometimes. And my husband thinks he still doesn't, he doesn't understand it. But I just know from Uh this pattern of sometimes play and laughing is my way into feeling and releasing like some Mm. other deeper emotions. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's one of the blessings of play is that it can do that. It it brings you to something very real, whatever is real in there. And uh, again, I think it's a wonderful lever uh, for bodyfulness. Mm-hmm. What you said about the trying new things before, um, mm. that's also something that my guests also talk about this and we talk about this together, how important it is to just try new things. And most of the time when mm-hmm. you're trying new things, you're engaging your body in a new way and, mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. can create new experiences and, you know, have your brain fire in a different way and create new mm-hmm. neural pathways. Yeah. And that was nice to hear kind of your take on why is it important to, mm-hmm. you know, engage in, and a variety of hobbies and different activities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And it's so interesting that this is coming out of a lot of studies on aging. It is interesting to me. And I think that it might be coming out of that field, but I think it's apply. It, it can uh, apply to, all ages, that this idea that uh, keeping oneself, uh, well, it has to do with the attentional systems in the brain that we want to wake up the uh, ability to pay sort of strong, calm attention to something. And novelty does that. Novelty wakes up uh, the attentional systems in your brain. And so it's Excellent for something like attention deficit disorder, as well as for cognitive issues and um, any issue where the ability to a lot of well, a lot of times in my work over the years, I've talked about um, attentional athleticism, that we actually need to be able to work with our attention like an athlete works. So that uh, when I trained dance therapy students at Naropa, we would talk a lot or work a lot with, can I put my attention on myself? Can I put my attention on the client? Can I oscillate my attention back and forth? Can I put my attention on the clock at one point? Can I really withdraw? You know, if I get stuck in a session, can I withdraw my, my attention from what I have been attending to? And put it someplace else because a lot of times I'm stuck because I'm paying attention to the wrong thing. And so the quality of athleticism about being able to see my attention like a muscle and that I actually tone it, which is something that meditation practice is brilliant at, that I think is one of the biggest upsides of meditation is that it makes your attentional muscle really strong. Mm-hmm. And that couldn't be a, a better skill uh, for a therapist than, I mean, aside from ethics, I think that's our best skill. Great. Well, thank you. 
You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. It's been fun. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I really enjoy this conversation. So your book comes out, is it a chapter in a book? It's a book. It's a book. It's a whole book. It's a whole Great. big thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's at the editor now, so I'm not sure when the, it'll be out, but uh, it's it's at least done. Yeah. Um, well, thank you. Yeah, this thank you. This has been really uh, quite lovely, and I'm so appreciative of what you're doing. This is such a great idea. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. All right, stay tuned for Christine Caldwell's book called Bodyfulness. It'll be out in 2018. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and don't forget to check out the site for the free episode about the conference. Bye!